to you. Ah, uh, good evening to you. Okay. Thought I was alone. I thought you were all props. I didn't know. So, what am I, like part of the furniture now? I'm a talking pulpit, chair, whatever. Proverbs chapter 22 this evening. Sunday night through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. If you're here tonight without a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles with Bibles right now and and uh, just waving. They'll get one into your hands, and then you can read as well as hear. And on Sunday night, that's it's always important, but even more important. We left off chapter 22 and uh, picked things up in verse 26. Do not be one of those who shakes hands in a pledge, uh, one who is a surety for debts, in other words, co-signing for a loan. If you have nothing with which to pay, why should he, uh, the creditor, take away your bed from under you, put your basic needs in jeopardy if the other person fails to make the payment? So we've got another um, warning against guaranteeing or a loan or co-signing a loan for someone else if we uh, are not able to absorb the responsibility of that loan uh, if the person defaults. And uh, that's very, um, very good counsel. Sometimes people will sign co-signs loans because it's family or friends or this kind of a thing. And and, uh, but they have absolutely no ability to pay that loan off if the person defaults. They're just gambling that it's not going to happen. And that isn't wise because you can then lose the very little bit that you have in life, the mat or the bed that you live on, to be taken away. Because if they default, then they come straight to the cosigner as well. And so uh, the importance of, of uh, certainly if you have the resources, then do it. But otherwise... Uh, the book of Proverbs warns against it. So nothing wrong with saying, listen, I couldn't afford to assume that debt if you failed, and so I'm sorry, I won't be able to uh, become a co-signer for you. Do not remove the ancient landmarks which your fathers have set, and the ancient landmarks were stones that were used in those days um, to constitute, uh, to mark the borders of property lines. And so at night, maybe someone would come out and move the marker so that their land would be a little bit bigger at your expense. And uh, so the warning uh, against doing that being it's a con- condemnation of theft and dishonesty. And so spiritually speaking, it has a wonderful application, I think, to not changing the foundation or the cornerstones of, uh, of things that are uh, the Basics of, of Christianity that should never ever be tampered with. I like what Jude said concerning it. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to all of the saints. And every generation faces a group that is trying to move the cornerstones. This is important. This is unimportant. And they're trying to redefine Christianity all of the time, so often away from how it's revealed in the Scriptures. And that is to rob God and it is to rob us. And it needs to be resisted. That's a worse theft than stealing 
uh, people's farmland, which is bad enough. Verse 29, do you see a man who excels in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before unknown men. And so uh, skill and diligence in life, it leads to promotion and it leads to honor. So this is commending skill in our work. It is commending craftsmanship in our work. And, uh, and having that doing excellent work is really the best way to influence an employer. And uh, people are always, no matter how many empl- good employees they have, uh, employers, people in positions of power, kings, these kind of things, um, they're always looking for hard workers, skilled workers. And so their ear is out, somebody who is skilled, somebody who is into craftsmanship, because it's who they are. They're not going to do just the least amount and know, well, they could never fire me because I got tenure or, or the union's too strong. But they have an internal code of excellence. That name is going to get passed around until finally uh, maybe even a king will say, listen, I want them to be a part of uh, what I'm all about. And, uh, and they're, they're always on the lookout. You say, well, how do you know that? <laughs> you just have to read the Bible. Joseph, uh, Moses, Daniel, Nehemiah, uh, all of these people that were excellent in what they did, people took notice of them and ended up in the highest uh, levels of, of uh, government and influence. Chapter 23, verse 1. When you sat down to eat with a ruler, now I don't know how often you do that, but uh, it's talking about something that's really an honor, you know, so I don't... I'm biting my tongue. This is an eternal war I'm fighting right at the moment. When you sit down to eat with a ruler... Again, an honor. Consider carefully what is put before you. In other words, they're going to feed you now and act appropriately in the situation. And put a knife to your throat. Wow. Okay. Uh, Symbolically speaking, if you are a man given to appetite, you just like to scarf everything down on the table, do not desire the ruler's delicacies, for they are deceptive food. And so... Uh, we're to do whatever is necessary in order to show self-restraint. And so you're in a place, a ruler's brought you in, and for most of us, if we were brought in to have a meal with a ruler, we'd go, uh, what's up? What's going on here? Um, do they just like little old me? Or am I the answer to some question that they're asking? Or do I have some piece of information that they're wanting? So if you sit down and you just eat every, everything that's on the table, uh, you don't want to do that uh, because when you gobble all of the food down, you might discover that the meal, and this is what the proverb is saying, the meal is an attempt to manipulate you, to kind of loosen you up or reveal secrets, or now you have been well fed and you feel indebted to this person, and so then the person then says to you, uh, well, tell me a little bit about what you know about this situation. And then your heart sinks and you realize, I'm not here because they like me or they care about me. This is deceptive food. This is a lie. This is a setup. They want to get something out of me. And uh, so uh, I remember one time I was um, I had two... 
brothers came to talk with me years and years and years ago when the church was uh, new. And I thought, oh, this is going to be great fellowship and everything. They're driving some distance to come and have lunch with me here. And so we're eating someplace. I think it was before the out, whatever the outback was 25 years ago, you know, whatever restaurant that was at the time. And we're eating, and then all of a sudden I'm like halfway through the second half of my sandwich, and then they tell me what it's all about. I'll tell you, my heart just sink. Oh, this was not about fellowship or meeting with me or anything like this for fellowship. And, and uh, you realize this is about something altogether uh, different. And so in these situations where you don't know what's going on really, to use self-discipline, restraint, and then just watch how... Uh, things unfold. And so today we use, uh, f- uh, we talk about people in business where you're trying to win a contract or you're trying to get somebody to come over to your company. We call that uh, whining and dining them. And that's the same kind of thing. It's a deceptive food. It's a manipulation, except in the business world, they all know what's going on. And, uh, but uh, that's uh, so common all the way through the ages. I like what one commentator put is like a three-word uh, commentary related to these three verses. He entitled it, Stab Thy Gluttony, <laughs> which is very, very good. Put, your, put the knife right there, you know. Verse 4, Do not overwork to be rich. Because of your own understanding, cease Will you set your eyes on that which is not? For riches certainly make themselves wings, and they fly like an eagle toward heaven. Did you feel that way about money? You say money talks. It does. It says, bye-bye. <laughs> it's floating away into new tennis shoes for the kids or the this or the that and uh, all of that stuff. So, But here's the prohibition against Overworking for the purpose of becoming rich. It's not, per, um, it is not condemning in any way, uh, or, or prohibiting hard work or long hours if that's necessary to provide the necessities for ourselves and for our families. Uh, we have to do what we have to do there. And sometimes that's, uh, uh Two jobs, one job and a part-time job. And in this economy, sometimes there's three part-time jobs in order to make that happen. A lot of people are hustling and working to make that happen. And so it's not saying, listen, don't overwork. Sometimes we have to work very, very hard just to make uh, ends meet. But it is uh, prohibiting overworking for the sake of becoming rich. And, of course, that's a very, very good word for us in light of the fact that materialism and this quest for becoming rich is so strong uh, a part of the fabric of our our country and our culture that a lot of people will uh, do excessive work in order to become rich. But he gives the reason why it's it's a foolish decision to make. And he tells us again, because riches are unstable, they're fleeting in life. So you're trying to get these things and they can be gone in an instant. It takes years and years and years to get these things and then just the way of the uncertainty of life, uh, they can be gone in an instant. And so often then a person looks back at that moment in time and says, I invested so much time, so much work, so much effort 
into these material things and now they're gone and then there's the regret thinking, I wish I had sunk that time into my marriage or into my family or into my service uh, for the Lord. So there's nothing wrong with working hard to supply the needs in our life, but when we overwork to be rich, that overwork is always at the expense of something else in life. And usually it is at the expense of something that we discover sooner or later is more valuable than material things. And uh, that is health and marriage, family and Christian service. Do not, verse 6, do not eat the bread of a miser. That's a stingy man. So we've got a different meal. This is the meal uh, proverbs tonight, isn't it? Makes you hungry. Do not eat the bread of a miser or a stingy man, nor desire his delicacies. For as he thinks, uh, he, for as he thinks in his heart, so is he. He says to you, eat and drink. Do you want some more? Do you want seconds? Oh, sure, it'd be great, you know. But his heart is not with you. The morsel you have eaten, you will vomit up and waste your pleasant words. And so this talks about false hospitality and uh, the regret of having received something from someone who is a tightwad. They give you something, but the whole time they're giving it to you, they're begrudging it uh, you uh, against you uh, for that. So here's a guy, he's taking a, a mental note of every bite that you eat of the food that he's serving to you. And you think, he's just being good, he's just being hospitable, and he actually means what he's saying. And he says, look at he's eating another bite of my food, and another, another plateful. So you've got this whole thing going on on the outside, but on the inside, uh, he's... Uh, against you and then he goes and he tells everybody about how much you ate and then it comes around to you you know within 48 hours related to uh, the complaint and you hear all about it and once you become aware of his true feelings then you wish his food had never ever come into his body in, into your body but um, that food's a little uh, harder to return to him uh, than a borrowed lawnmower uh, or a baking pan or something like that, but you regret it. To just stay away from, there are those kinds of people. They're just, it's just terrible. They say one thing and the whole time they just hate you for taking them up on it. And then you say, oh, I wish I'd never met this person and never took them up on it. It's a, it's the way that some uh, people are in life and to steer clear of it. You don't need the aggravation. Verse 9, do not speak in the hearing of a fool, for he will despise the words of your wisdom. And so a proverb that talks about not wasting your time talking to a fool. He doesn't want to hear what you have to say. Not, he doesn't even want to listen to what you have to say, let alone invest any time in seriously considering the wisdom that you're trying to speak to them. That word fool, it means, uh, literally, it means stupid. And it means insolent or rude or arrogant or disrespectful. And so there are people that are that way. They are that way uh, toward uh, the wisdom of words, certainly that way toward the gospel. Jesus warned about not uh, casting our pearls before swine. And there is there's certain kinds of people that you speak to them about spiritual things, these things, uh, the offer of God for salvation that 
uh, came at enormous expense to both God the Father and God the Son, and they just have no more respect or regard for that message than a pig has a regard for a necklace. And, uh, And Jesus said, listen, just move on to the next person. So leave that person alone. They're not ready to listen. They're not teachable yet. Doesn't mean they won't be that. They'll be that way all of their lives. But move on to the person who's waiting to hear the gospel. None of us are the same people that we were a year ago or ten years ago or even a week ago. So much happens and so much growth occurs. But at that moment in time, that person is a fool. And uh, have you, you've never been a fool. Don't be offended by the word. Um, I think we've all been fools at times in our life. And, uh, and so here is this, uh, w- with this, doesn't mean that a person is always going to be in that place, but at that moment you're not going to get through to them, and then you just simply uh, move on to someone who will listen to wisdom. And sometimes that happens even within a family. I mean, some of you are parents, you've raised your children, and... Uh, uh, all of them or some of them want nothing to do with the Lord or anything like that, and you can't speak up. You can't, you'd like to be a spiritual influence in their life. They're grown. They don't want to hear it, blah, 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 all of these kind of things. There's all kinds of opportunities to then take that and say, all right, even my own kids won't listen right now, but where is there a mentoring program in this town? Or who's... Uh, one or two kids that are part of our church here that don't have a father or they don't have a mother and I can then speak into their lives and be a blessing to them. So move on to the next person and uh, use your gift and your plant your wisdom into someone who wants to hear. Verse 10, do not remove the ancient landmarks nor the enter the fields of the fatherless. This is the worst. These are property thieves that are stealing from uh, the uh, fatherless, the orphans, the most uh, um, vulnerable people in the population. And, and uh, the proverbist says, For their Redeemer is mighty, he will plead their, uh, their cause against you. And so this one speaks about not stealing land or taking advantage of the powerless and to realize that they have a redeemer. It's the word goel. It means kinsman redeemer. As we've studied through the Old Testament, they have a blood relative in God who will step up and be for them what uh, your what your father would have normally done in that situation. And so it's just not wise uh, to mess with the poor. It's just the lowest thing in the world to take advantage of the poor And uh, God dislikes it even more, and uh, he will step up and he will protect them at your expense, the person that might be trying to take advantage of them. Apply your heart to instruction and your ears uh, to words of knowledge. And so this tells us that learning uh, isn't effortless. It requires diligence and applying oneself. You've got to apply the heart to instruction. You've got to apply the ears uh, to words of knowledge. You ever, when you were a kid, maybe you did or you didn't, but, you know, I mean, I grew up on the Jetsons and then also the Flintstones. So there was like the, uh, this is why I'm so conflicted. 
We had the future, and then we had the past, and the car. It was, it traumatized me. Just give me a moment while I regroup. It's just, it's epiphany. I've just realized why I have struggled all my adult life. It was because I was allowed to watch cartoons as a child. But they had all of these things where, you know, you wouldn't have to cook a meal. You just eat a pill and they come up and boop and the robots in the hole and all that kind of stuff. And I used to think before tests, there were certain subjects that I really liked in school. And then there were ones that, oh, can you really, can I get an amen? Oh, oh, the sciences in math, God bless you if you are skilled at that. I would just stare at those pages for hours. I made an effort, but I used to think, wouldn't it be great, you know, and, they, and people would even talk about it. In the future, you'll just put headphones on while you're sleeping, and it'll talk over and over and over again, and you'll wake up and you'll be Albert Einstein. And uh, that's how it'll work. But it, it doesn't work that way. It's application. It's hard work. You find smart people. You find educated people. You find knowledgeable people in any field, and that didn't just happen to them. Uh, that There's a lot of hard work behind that and to realize that. And, of course, the application related to the Bible is so important. And this is a, this is a shift that's happening today a little bit as well, where um, churches are becoming entertainment centers. It's just like people come in, they fold their arms, and they say, now move me. And uh, we're up against... 3,000 television shows that they could be watching at home with the remote in their hand and 20 movies that came out this month and however many video games and how much music and all of this kind of stuff. And they just want it to be easy, just going to be effortless, that it's got to be all entertainment and it's got to be funny and it's got to be dynamic and and it's got to be all of these things. And the speaker then feels like they have to make up for the lack of motivation in the listener to learn. And, uh, and, and it's important that we don't lose that. And I, I think related to a room like this, I know I'm talking to the choir you're here on Sunday night, my goodness. But you go into any place you're going to pay in order to take so many units at MJC or Stan State or wherever you want to go and you're going to apply yourself and all of this and then somehow sometimes some group of people comes into a room like this and then and then if it requires anything of them in terms of concentration or learning then then it's something wrong with the speaker but we got to bring our own want to uh, to our relationship with God and learning about the Word of God. There's some speakers that um, are very, very dynamic speakers today. I mean, they have charisma just dripping off of them. I mean, I would feel jealous if I wasn't such a charismatic leader myself. <laughs> it's just part of being Scottish. We just raise up these wild, crazy, dynamic, charismatic uh, leaders. It's just part of my heritage. I feel silly for having even mentioned it because it's so obvious to you week in and week out. But you listen to some of what's going on right now, and it is very engaging. It's very interesting. It's very emotional. Um, it's uh, very much meeting 
uh, people on an emotional level, on a soulish level. But the only reason that they're getting to preach those sermons and have the size of the crowds that they are, and uh, in addition to some tremendous natural talent and without a doubt God-given talent, is because somewhere in the um, life of the congregation, somebody else built a biblical foundation in their life that allows them to be able to then follow it. See, so much of the teaching today assumes a biblical knowledge on the part of the listener because they're not providing a biblical knowledge. It's a, it's a prophetic word. It's a devotional word. It's this kind of thing. And somewhere along the way, I've got to be a learner of the Word of God. And then, of course, then you can enjoy anything and everything that gets uh, taught. But um, it is important to realize that related to uh, even the Bible. It isn't just going to happen. God, uh, he honors diligence in the study of his word. Do not withhold correction from a child, for if you beat him with a rod, he will not die. You shall beat him with a rod and deliver his soul from hell. And so another warning to parents, especially passive parents, not to withhold discipline from our children. Children need discipline. They need verbal discipline, guidance, training. They also need uh, physical discipline. Very important in terms of just the poetic language of uh, the two verses. The verse is not intended to uh, promote child abuse or um, you know, the physical abuse of a child by a parent. The language is, is, is strong here related to this because it's intended to wake up or it's intended to motivate the overly permissive parent not to be afraid and thinking they're going to do some damage to their children if they find it necessary uh, to spank them or punish them in that way. It's not going to kill your child. And the Holy Spirit says, in fact, it may even uh, save your child one day from being killed uh, from an early death. My son, if your heart is wise, my heart will rejoice Indeed, I myself, and so a father speaking to a son, yes, uh, or a parent, yes, my inmost being will rejoice when your lips speak right things. And so this communicates the joy of a father and a mother over a child who is wise, one who receives discipline and instruction, and as a result of that becomes a force for good and a force for God uh, in uh, in the world, and so uh, very very. That's the best way to uh, bless parents, physical parents, earthly parents, is to be that kind of a child. And of course, the same thing is true of our spiritual fathers and uh, mothers. Paul wrote, wrote, and he said, "For now we live if you stand fast in the Lord." John wrote, and he said, "I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth." I have three spiritual fathers. Bill McDonald, who modeled by life. I, when he taught the Word of God, he, it was the first time a light went on and I realized you can understand the Bible. And more than that, that we are supposed to understand the Bible. 
He made it so simple and he made it so clear. And the beauty of his Christian life. And then Chuck Smith, who taught me the power of the Word of God all by itself in the hands of the Holy Spirit. Again, the simplicity and the clarity of his teaching. And then Gail Irwin, who took and uh, taught me the nature of Jesus and taught me that it was okay to be who I am in the Lord because I figured if he got away with being like he is and God liked it, then I could get away with not trying to be like everybody else that I'm really not. It must be okay for me. And so, once again, I've become a dynamic kind of speaker in the line of Gail Irwin. uh, But but I think about those men, and two of those men are in heaven now, and I have Gail who is still, still with me. But I want to bless them, and I know you do too. I want to bless men and women who invested in my life and for them to every time they hear, is he still walking with the Lord? He's still walking with the Lord. (laughs) Praise you, Lord. And it's good for our physical parents, but also for those that have that role in our life spiritually, coming to know the Lord and growing in Him. Do not let my heart, do not let your heart envy sinners because their pleasures are short-lived, but be zealous for the fear of the Lord all the day, for surely there is a hereafter. Surely there is a hereafter. There is an eternity. And your hope will not be cut off. And so live with eternity in mind. The pleasures of the wicked. The Bible says that sin is pleasurable for a season. And usually it's a very short season before the hook behind sin. Now it's got you. And the addiction takes place. And now you're no longer in control of your life. But that sin is in control of your life. But even if a person gets to enjoy the pleasures of sin, the passing pleasures of sin, the writer of the book of Hebrews uh, says, even if they get to do it for the entire length of their life, it's still a very short season in comparison to eternity. And the moment they die, all of that pleasure uh, is uh, gone. They will leave behind uh, all of it in this life when they die. And when we die, all of our blessings and our pleasures are just going to be uh, beginning. So we're not going to ever be disappointed for having lived for the Lord and uh, uh, not then, uh, not now, and not not then. And that's a good word for us, and it's repeated through the book of Proverbs. Hear, my son, and be wise, and guide your heart in the way. Do not mix with wine-bibbers, nor with gluttonous eaters of meat. I like that gluttonous eaters of meat. It's like a men's softball team. (laughs) For the drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty and drowsiness, speaking of hangovers, will clothe a man with rags. And so every child grows up, comes out from under the authority, the spiritual authority of their father and of their uh, mother, and then they've got to have some concern on their own for their future and, and for their well-being. That, and that They've got to have that same concern as their parents had for them, and they do that by being very discerning about who they make their friends and their influencers, who they hang around with. Never, ever let people choose you as their friend supremely. 
You choose your friends. You make that decision. And be discerning about who you make your friends. I exhort myself related to that same thing. Our friends are our influencers and a warning away from people who just live to get drunk and just live to eat, live for the lust of the flesh and its appetites. It leads to poverty. Listen to your father who begot you and do not despise or show contempt uh, toward your mother when she is old. Well, that's a wonderful verse, isn't that? Mothers and fathers right there uh, in the Bible. So here you have, again, the kind of child that parents can be proud uh, of. And uh, concerning the father, we are to remember that he gave us life and he has owed the respect of listening to him concerning anything that he would want to speak into our lives as a result of having that position that assumes that what he's going to say is godly. So respect. This, of course, in the Bible times and in much of the world that we live in today, it's a patriarchal society. There is great um, respect given to the older. They're the dominant influence within the culture. It's all turned upside down here, and it's part of the reason we have a lot of the problems that we have. But this good thing to speak here and say, That guy gave you life, and he deserves the respect of being listened to if he feels he has something to say uh, to you. And then concerning the mother now, the idea is that now when she needs your care, like you once needed hers, she passed the test of her character and committing the very best years of her life to you. And now the question will be whether... Uh, we will pass the test of our character in doing the same for her. So again, the encouragement of heeding parental instruction and advice. How many think, how many of you know <laughs> the amount of problems that our children would be spared of? Not all of each of our children, but children in general would be spared of if they would just listen to one or two things that we would say. And, and it isn't um, not a, there has to be that leaving and cleaving. We can't be meddlesome related to um, a marriage. It becomes its own unit and all of those things. Nobody wants you know mom and dad calling every day on every decision or whatever. But there is that thing where you can just see a train wreck and, and uh, to be able to speak something uh, into that, and uh, but uh, the culture being what it is today, um, most often parents are forced into a position of, of silence. Buy the truth and do not sell it. Also wisdom and instruction and understanding. And so truth is valuable stuff, and when you get it, hold on to it. Don't give it up. And, uh, of course, the truth of God's word, supreme related to all of that. You know, take the wisdom of God's word and just throw it away for the nonsense of the world. No, when you have the truth, hold on to the truth. Think about how many people live their lives every day. They've never been exposed to the truth. What's the truth? God's word. Jesus said, sanctify them. He spoke to the Father in a prayer right before he was crucified the next day. He said, Father, sanctify them by your, uh, your word. Your word is truth. And so 
The, a lot of people live, they would love to have the truth. They would love to have a Christian heritage. They would love to have been raised in a Christian home. And they, they would prize it if something like that had happened. And others, they have all of that, and they just throw it away uh, for nothing. And the proverb warns against it. The father of the righteous will rejoice, uh, greatly rejoice. And he who begets a wise son will delight in him. Let your father and your mother be glad. And let her who bore you rejoice. And so living a righteous life, living a wise life, the greatest gift a child can give to their parents. My son, give me your heart and let your eyes observe my way. In other words, he's saying, son, I'm begging you, listen to me. For a harlot, a prostitute, is a deep pit. You fall in that pit, that's rough to get out of. And a seductress, that speaks of a woman who isn't a professional harlot, but she's an adulterer, she is a sexually immoral person, but she doesn't do it for money, is a narrow well, in other words, easy to fall into once again, but hard uh, to get out of. She also lies in wait as for a victim and increases the unfaithfulness among men. So another warning against having anything to do with a sexually immoral uh, person. And sometimes people are sexually immoral because of sexual lust, but sometimes even here you've got a woman who just likes to bring men down. It's a trap. She hates men. She just wants them to fall, bring destruction into their life. And it's not just true of women towards men, but it's also true of a sexually immoral man toward women as well. And so the warning, stay away uh, from uh, those kind of people. They're very, very destructive. Here in verse 29 now we come to uh, kind of God's in-depth study of the drunkard, and it's the longest warning against drunkenness in the book of Proverbs. And it starts, who has woe? And uh, the idea is, and so woe is emotional problems. Who has sorrow? Again, drunkenness and alcoholism, it brings emotional problems into a person's life. Who has contentions? It results in social problems in a person's life. Who has complaints? Again, social problems. Who has wounds without cause? Physical problems of uh, drunkenness. Who has redness of eyes? They're bloodshot. Again, physical problems. Those who linger long at wine and those who go in search of mixed wine, those who get drunk. Do not look at the wine when it's red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it swirls around smoothly. In other words, what it looks like on the TV ads or in the magazine ads. You know, I don't always drink beer, but when I do, I always drink Dosakis. They're funny ads, but I mean, so don't just, there's a whole life on the other side of that. Stay away from it. At the last, it drinks, look at they say, television doesn't affect you. I didn't even know I knew the commercial, except it comes into my mind. I'll try to memorize a verse. Oh, oh, oh. 
At the last, it bites like a serpent, and it stings like a viper. It's poisonous. It's deadly. Your eyes will see strange things. It produces mental problems. And your heart will utter perverse things. There's a loss of inhibitions. You said, I said, what? I did what? We're married? Where'd I get that tattoo? Again, other commercials (laughs) related to that. A dumb jack-in-the-box thing where that guy got that big dolphin tattoo on his forehead or whatever, sold the car to get it, the whole thing. It's the same thing. I mean, all of life is preaching if we'll see the Bible in it. It takes a little work. And yes, you will be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea, you know, just staggering and bobbing the person is when they're drunk, reeling back and forth. Or like the one who lies at the top of the mast saying, they've struck me, but I was not hurt. Hit me again. I can't feel you. Is that your best punch? (laughs) Just dumb as a rock, insensitive to pain. They've beaten me, but I didn't feel it. And when I wake... uh, when I, when shall I awake that I may seek another drink? He wakes up, and even despite all of those mental, emotional problems that it's brought into his life, the physical problems and all, he, all he can think about is getting his next drink. And that's the, the problem with, uh, uh, with uh, drunkenness. Uh, chapter 24. Do not be envious of evil men, nor desire to be with them. For their heart devises violence and their lips talk of troublemaking. Though through wisdom a house is built and by understanding it is established. By knowledge the rooms are filled with all uh, precious and pleasant riches. And so a life is likened to a house here in this proverb. And so the way to uh, build a sure, a solid, a prosperous life is to build your life upon God's wisdom, not upon uh, wickedness. And so don't admire evil people or envy them at all. Uh, crime doesn't pay. This is the way uh, to live. I think it was um, Billy Sunday. He was a famous evangelist, and he got just saved right out of darkness. I mean, this was like thoroughly saved, the way people should get saved. He became an evangelist for the Lord, and I think that somebody said to him, I might have him mixed up with somebody else, but I think it was Billy Sunday. Somebody said, he was mocking, he was street witnessing, preaching on a corner or something, and said something about, does, you know, does Jesus still turn water into wine? He says, well, I don't know. All I know is he's turned wine into furniture. He was an alcoholic in his house. And so the money that was going into all of the alcohol and all of that turned into furniture for their house and for the kids and everything got turned around and and it speaks a little bit, I think, to those uh that collection of proverbs. A wise man is strong. Yes, a man of knowledge increases strength, for by wise counsel you will wage your own war and a multitude in a multitude of counselors there is safety. So it speaks about the superiority of wisdom over just pure brute strength um, in in a battle. 
And uh, we talk about people sometimes who say, well, he's all brawn but no brain. And, and that's a saying that testifies to the same uh, truth of all of this. And so brawn can take you so far, but then somebody else comes along and realizes that, wow, I think if you use a little bit of leverage here and maybe a pulley system and a gear system, uh, we could probably do that with a little French poodle and not uh, Andre the Giant over here. And I'm not saying Andre the Giant wasn't smart. Um, but the, the, the wisdom and the value of it. And uh, one of the greatest characteristics of a wise person is that they're willing to uh, tap into the wisdom of other people. And why would a wise person, a person who's already wise, tap into the wisdom of other people um, except that he's wiser than you even realize. He's humble. He knows that that he's got his blind spots. He needs th- their perspective as well. And the bigger the decision, the bigger the war that's going to be waged, the more he realizes there's safety in the multitude of counselors. I'm going to ask a few people about how they see this, and it's a very wise thing for a person to do. It doesn't mean you're going to do what somebody else says, but then you take all of that together to prayer to the Lord, and you say, Lord, I think I'm seeing this pretty clearly. You see it clearest of all. You tell me what you see about, think about this, and then now lead me. Wisdom is too lofty for a fool. He does not open his mouth in the gate. And in the gate of a city in the ancient days, that was where the wise men or the rulers or the powerful people sat. And they judged related to different cases or uh, controversies. It was kind of like a court of law. People would bring their problem, and the rulers or the elders of the city would judge uh, those problems. And so... Uh, here you've got uh, this fool, the Hebrew word that's used for fool there. It speaks of an arrogant fool. It speaks about very hardened fool. I mean, he's dug in. And uh, so when he's in that uh, area of the gate, he's out of his element in the presence of true wisdom. But the idea is that he's too stupid to realize that there's something wrong with him. It's got to be everybody else's stupid because nobody is, you know, thinking the way that he's thinking. And so he mocks God's wisdom. He scorns God's wisdom. But the proof is in the pudding because he looks around and if he ever was to be honest with himself, he would realize, boy, when people want wisdom, I notice they never come to me. And and that's the... Uh, the uh, you know the proof of all of it. So there's that kind of person in life. All they can do is tear down other people, but they have no wisdom or anything constructive to to say to anybody else. And there are those people that there's not an ounce of wisdom. Almost it seems as if inside of them, the only thing they can do is just tear down everybody else. What a drain those kind of people are. And they think it's because they're so smart and everyone else is so dumb. And the proverb says, wait a second, look in the mirror. It's because you're not as smart as you think you are. I'm not talking to any of you here right now. But these kind of people fill other churches all over the place. You're just kidding. Verse 8, he who plots to do evil will be called a schemer. The devising of foolishness is sin, and the scoffer, the idea is the scoffer of what is right, is an abomination to uh, men. And so people don't respect people who devise evil. 
or uh, scheme evil or devise foolishness. They don't respect people who scoff at what is right. In fact, they uh, despise them. And it's good to remember that. We live in a very politically correct world today, don't we? (laughs) If people are so afraid to say anything, they're going to get trapped. And here's a guy walks into an interview. He's got firm convictions on a particular issue. And by the time these journalists get done with him, it's like, how in the world can you even think something like this? And all he's thinking like is what God says and truth that has served mankind for thousands of years and all. And, and, uh, and so everybody's being shut down right now. There's an attempt to shut people down from, you know, uh, speaking what... Uh, what is is right and all this other nonsense is elevated and all. But down in people's hearts, they still know who they respect. And there's no respect for this kind of person. And one day they'll get kicked off of the throne, they'll get knocked out of their place, and everyone will go hip, hip, hooray. If you faint in the day of adversity, time of difficulty or trial, then your strength is small. And so how we handle adversity is a test of our uh, strength. So anyone can be strong when everything's going well, everything is easy, um, all of my trials are smaller than my resources, and it's easy to be strong in those kind of uh, situations. But um, our true strength is revealed in a season of adversity. And, of course, they, those seasons, they expose our our weakness, and of course, for the child of God, that's a blessing. Because as the Lord spoke to Paul, and uh, Paul uh, had a thorn in the flesh of some kind, some kind of a physical ailment that was really hard on him, very difficult. And he prayed to the Lord three times that the Lord would heal him, remove this thorn in the flesh. Somehow it was a, a satanic thing that God had allowed to get through a kind of a protective barrier that was allowed by God in order to keep Paul humble in the light of the revelation that he had and how God was using him. And Paul uh, cried out three times in prayer for the Lord to heal him. And the Lord uh, told him, no, that he wouldn't, but that his strength is made perfect in weakness. So it's a funny thing you get in these It's not talking about our own physical strength here, our own determination or emotional or mental strength or anything like that. But for us, when we hit these trials that absolutely overwhelm our own natural resources, it is there that we then discover uh, God's uh, strength. I like the old saying that uh, it is... Uh, it is only as we are pushed beyond our own resources that we discover his. And that's just the way that it is. I'd like to just think that I'm a great man of faith and uh, spiritual um, exploits and all of these kind of things and then live fully within uh, the... Uh, meager but known uh, limitations of my own strength. But the Lord, he does the same thing with you. He then pushes us beyond our own resources, and then we get to discover his strength. And so if we fail in times of trouble, it's because we are failing to draw on the greater strength that he offers. And I would never, there's so much, how much would we know about God if he didn't push us into these other places to discover uh, his strength and make that strength a part of our lives as well? Well, let's stop there tonight and we'll pick things up in verse 11 next time. So let's stand together. 
I'll ask the worship team to come forward and uh, close us in a worship song.